Truth Espresso, episode 270. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host for Truth Espresso, Daniel Minnick. Welcome to part two of discussing Margaret Sanger, A Legacy of Death. And if you haven't listened to last week, I would highly recommend that you tune into that one because it will provide some of the background, some of the autobiography of Ms. Margaret Sanger so that we can get an idea about what we're going to look at in this episode. But if you're just tuning in, prepare for a barrage of quotable quotes from the founder of what became Planned Parenthood that we know today. Now, as a little bit of review from the last episode, Margaret Sanger was a nurse who campaigned for what she called birth control, basically a political platform for contraceptives. Now, Margaret Sanger was a feminist. She did believe that contraception would liberate women. But as we will see in this episode, contraceptions did not simply have the goal of liberating women from unwanted pregnancies as Sanger's only goal. Margaret Sanger primarily fought against what was known as the Comstock Act that made it illegal to use the post office to send anything that would promote lewd things, contraceptives, or abortifacients. And those who were in favor of the Comstock Act would sometimes also try to use it to prohibit advertisements for services such as uh, contraceptive support that Margaret Sanger campaigned for. Margaret Sanger actually opened the very first birth control clinic in New York. She is very much responsible for contraceptive culture in the United States. And perhaps it wasn't her goal, but her efforts ultimately led to abortion culture in the United States. So if you listen to the last episode, you would actually hear statements from Margaret Sanger that would often sound at least a little bit like what you might hear from pro-life campaigns, organizations, speakers today. Margaret Sanger was not in favor of abortion. But not to give Sanger too much credit, Sanger was not a Christian. She was a secular humanist. She didn't oppose abortion outright. She just considered it like the least favorable option. And she considered contraception innocent. So Margaret Sanger began the American Birth Control League. Ultimately, it and another organization she started became the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, 
and Margaret Sanger intended for it to be an organization for both the politics and the nursing services associated with, in her view, helping women with contraceptives. But as we know today, Planned Parenthood has become an abortion mill And Sanger herself believed that birth control would reduce or eliminate the perceived need for abortions. But we see that even though contraceptives have become available, in fact, much more so than they were in Sanger's day. In fact, Margaret Sanger was responsible for getting the law started, for making contraceptives actually legal in some isolated circumstances. Now, contraceptives are legal for pretty much any use for anyone, whether they're married or cohabiting, whatever. Our society has turned into a society that doesn't respect biblical marriage, thinks marriage is only something that has to be redefined. Marriage itself has no meaning other than as a tax status. There's no such thing as commitment, sacrifice, having the goal of being a father and mother, raising a family, actually caring for your children. The idea of being a parent actually involving hard work and sacrifice because everyone's looking for that misplaced utopian situation where somehow you can be ready to be a parent. And if you're ready to be a parent, it happens automatically and there's no pain or suffering or hard work or sacrifice involved. Somehow when you're ready for it, it doesn't ding the wallet. It doesn't ding your physical competency. It doesn't stretch you at all. It's just easy because we have a society today in which everything is supposed to be easy and the ultimate goal is the pursuit of self-comfort, fulfilling one's desires without any kind of restrictions at all. And if somehow you can't achieve that, it's because someone is depriving you of it with evil intent. So we get back to Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was ahead of her time when it came to uh, birth control, but she was ahead of her time because she took on the goals of eugenics and population control and feminism before the revolution of the 1960s. And some of Margaret Sanger's ideas have succeeded today. But others, thankfully, have kind of somewhat been memory hold. although it's not good to let them memory hold so that people will think that Margaret Sanger was basically a humanist saint. People do need to realize the things that she said and advocated that would shock a lot of ears today. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, briefly to talk a little bit about contraceptives, as what uh, Margaret Sanger called birth control, at least with her goal of liberating women. Now, should people have some freedom wherewith they can plan their families? Well, of course, it's up to people to be able to figure out what they can and can't do and to be able to control their vessel, as the Apostle Paul said. 
I, for one, would say that abstinence is the best and the most biblical form of birth control. If you're not ready to have children, you should not be doing what God has designed that can, as a byproduct, bring forth children. That's the way God made things biologically. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And you get married, you have children. There are some situations which make that challenging, unfortunately. But the way God designed things is that that's the way society should be, that people understand virtue, understand self-discipline, and understand consequences for actions. And so, valuing life, it is always wrong to take an innocent human life, such as through abortion, And abortion should not be considered a form of planning one's family. You don't kill children just so that you can engage in acts that bring forth children, that could bring forth children, and then just kill them because you don't want them. There's nothing biblical about that. There's nothing in the way God designed humanity to function that would indicate that there is anything positive about that. And now contraception, like if we're talking about theoretically something that doesn't cause abortion, something that would prevent fertilization or conception to happen, I would say as a devout Christian, you have that between you and God and your spouse. Obviously, I do not in any way condone relationships that are not within the bounds of marriage. Now, situations happen, and, you know, as my wife is a women's health care provider, you know, she's going to be gentle and loving with how she deals with people, but in no way do we prescribe or condone activities that are outside the biblical arrangement of marriage. Now, between married couples, I would say that husband and wife, whatever they do for planning their family, they should be well informed. If you're using any form of medical contraception, first of all, of course, it's between you and God and your spouse. And second of all, you should be well informed as to whether what you're doing would cause an abortion. And I know that there's going to be different beliefs, like the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in particular is that contraception itself, in any form, regardless if it prevents or terminates a pregnancy, is is simply wrong. And perhaps there is validity to their arguments, but all I would say is make sure you're not killing human life. Make sure you're doing things within the bounds of marriage, and if if there's any debate on it, make sure that you only do things if you have a clear conscience before God, that you quench not the spirit, that there is no pressure from one spouse to another about it either. So, in summary, contraception, if it's in any way okay, it has to be not an abortifacient, and many of them are. So, you need to do your research. It also needs to be consensual, and it also needs to be with a clear conscience between you and God. And there has to be a respect for life and a respect for children. 
if, hypothetically speaking, contraception, some methods, whatever, that don't abort children, that all they do is somehow prevent pregnancies without fertilization happening at all, and without harming one's body, because some pills and such can affect women's hormones. You know, like, I'm not an expert on that. My wife knows more about that. But yeah, as I say, you've got to do your research. You have to pray about it. You have to have a clear conscience before God. It has to be consensual. And some contraception methods may not work. And I would say that, hey, if it doesn't work, you're going to love your child. You weren't trying to kill your child. If God blesses you with a child, you will welcome your child with open arms. And so I'm sure, you know, as listeners, you might have different opinions about contraceptions. And so I'm not an authority on that. All I'm suggesting is that you must have a clear conscience before God, be well informed and be consensual and as much as you can reduce your need for contraceptives as much as you can and respect life. And don't treat contraceptives some, as some kind of human right or a Christianized sacrament. So that's just a little bit of a layperson's words of advice on trying to evaluate the minefield of contraceptives. Now, let's look at what Margaret Sanger said about contraceptives and birth control and realize that it wasn't all just liberating women. If such a thing could result in simply the innocence of that, if you listen to the last episode, yes, Margaret Sanger was not a fan of abortion. Some of her statements kind of sounded somewhat pro-life. Her campaigns for birth control and contraceptives really unavoidably had the principles of eugenics in mind. Far from merely liberating women, Sanger's goals were to control society. So eugenics was this idea of being able to purify the human race, reduce the number of people who were deemed defective, handicapped, people who might have been seen as tending toward criminality, inferior races if it came to that, and try to fashion the human race to have more people who were intelligent to be the ones who would breed more. Now, eugenics would also seem to sometimes overlap with population control. So, like, possibly keep population growth tamer, while at the same time increasing the proportion of humans who do pass down their genes, being those who were considered were intelligent and civilized, and preventing people who were poor or had uh, physical defects or mental defects to prevent them from having children. So let's see what Margaret Sanger had to say about birth control as a means of controlling population. So in her Highlights in the History of Birth Control on October 1923, Margaret Sanger had this to say, quote, Succinctly and with telling brevity, these two words sum up our whole philosophy. Birth control does not mean contraception indiscriminately practiced. It means the release and cultivation of the better elements in our society and the gradual expression, elimination, and eventual extinction 
of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization, unquote. So, far from what you might hear today from people who might ignorantly or even intentionally praise Margaret Sanger by trying to rewrite history, she wasn't just an advocate of birth control to free women from unwanted children. That was part of it, but she said so right here, birth control, the two words birth control. It didn't just mean birth control for the individual. It was something that society from the top down should manage. So birth control has something to do with controlling the fabric of society. She said herself, it does not mean contraception indiscriminately practiced, in her words. People today who might be fans of Margaret Sanger and birth control think that that's what it's all about. Some kind of libertine freedom to do what you want to do without having those pesky children result. But Margaret Sanger believed that birth control had the goal of controlling the births of people, possibly even against their will. And we're going to see some of her other prescriptions that make that even more clear because for Margaret Sanger, birth control was a way to eliminate defective stocks or what she called human weeds. Now, I've seen this quote used to have Margaret Sanger refer to black people as the human weeds. Now, that may be part of it in a sense. I don't think Margaret Sanger, in her defense here in this quote, was specifically referring to black people. Now, there could be black people included in this, and we will also see that she looked at black people as people who would more likely fall under the conditions for the category of defective stocks and human weeds, but I don't think this was directly talking about them. But we see the eugenics here. Eugenics viewed the human race as kind of a garden so you take uh, Gregor Mendel's genetics and you apply it to humanity and you have the human garden blooming the finest flowers of American civilization. And of course, the policy wonks, the birth control think tanks like Planned Parenthood and people like Margaret Sanger, they should be the caretakers and the rest of us are the garden. So let's see what Sanger, or at least one of her cohorts, said. Margaret Sanger ran a periodical called the Birth Control Review. And if you look that up, you'll see a picture of showing a woman kind of with her ankle chained to a ball. And the ball says unwanted children. So women are chained to the curse of unwanted children and birth control frees them from that punishment. But someone by the name of W.E.B. Dubois wrote in a contribution in Sanger's birth control review periodical that says, quote, On the other hand, the mass of ignorant Negroes still breed carelessly and disastrously, so that the increase among Negroes, even more than the increase among whites, is from that part of the population least intelligent and fit, and least able to rear their children properly, unquote. 
So, since this was Margaret Sanger's periodical, we would be fair to associate Margaret Sanger's thinking with this contribution here. So Sanger and her cohorts already had a negative bias toward black people as most likely, in the words of this article, least intelligent and fit and least able to rear their children properly. So we could see that from the previous quote from Margaret Sanger talking about defective stocks and human weeds that they would likely include minorities. Now, let's see an incident where Margaret Sanger, in her autobiography, talks about a speaking engagement she had with a women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. So yes, Margaret Sanger thought it worthwhile to talk to people in the KKK as having at least some similar goals So, in her autobiography, on page 366, she said, quote, Always, to me, any aroused group was a good group, and therefore I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan at Silver Lake, New Jersey, one of the weirdest experiences I had in lecturing, unquote. And then, as you read through some of the narrative for how she ended up arriving at the place for her speech, then she says on the next page, page 367, quote, After three hours, I was summoned at last and entered a bright corridor filled with wraps. As someone came out of the hall, I saw through the door dim pictures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I waited another 20 minutes. It was warmer, and I did not mind so much. Eventually, the lights were switched on, the audience seated itself, and I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak." So, she obviously talked to them about some of the things that she shared with them, some of the goals about having biases toward handicapped people or possible minorities, whatever she said to them, she shared some of their goals. And then another quote, she says, In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. The conversation went on and on, and when we were finally through, it was too late to return to New York. Unquote. So, she was willing to speak to similar organizations. Now, I'm not saying that Sanger was a member of the Ku Klux Klan or believed everything they believed, but as a eugenicist, there's going to be some overlap in how they view the world and some of their goals. Yes, I I wonder how many people today who just look fondly at Margaret Sanger as some sort of women's liberator actually realize that she spoke to a Ku Klux Klan group. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters. Proclaiming the truths of Christ, truths of Christ, with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, 
sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. Now, let's see some more Margaret Sanger and how she viewed treating the population with her birth control goals. In her 1932 article entitled, My Way to Peace, Sanger proposed for the U.S. government a population congress, and she had a list of things that this population congress could achieve. So I'm going to look at a few of them. So Point D, as she lists, she says, quote, apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring, unquote. So we can see that Sanger really did not like the idea of some people being able to reproduce that she deemed unfit to reproduce. And how to resolve that? Well, have a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation. So she wanted to separate out people who would be defective stocks or human weeds and hopefully have some of those people sterilized such that they were physically incapable of having children. Point F, she says, quote, The whole dysgenic population would have its choice of segregation or sterilization, unquote. So pick your poison here. They would get to choose between two things that would not be very enjoyable. One choice would be to segregate into their own community and not be able to pollute the more intelligent people or intermarry with them or get to fellowship and work with them. Or if they wanted to be able to live integrated in, with the rest of, the, of society, they would have to be sterilized such that they would not be able to enjoy the joys of parenthood and have a legacy. Point G for Sanger's Population Congress, quote, There would be farmlands and homesteads where these segregated persons would be taught to work under competent instructors for the period of their entire lives, unquote. Now, if you just heard what I read there and really thought about it, what does this proposal sound like to you? It's kind of like, say that you're in favor of some form of slavery without saying that you're in favor of some form of slavery. I don't know how else to deal with what she said here without it sounding somewhat like a form of slavery. People are segregated into farmlands and they're taught to work under instructors for the rest of their lives. What else could that be except slavery? That sounds like a good dictionary definition of it. 
Now, Sanger, like many socialists, was not a fan of private charity. In her book entitled The Pivot of Civilization, she had a chapter entitled The Cruelty of Charity, in which she claimed that private charity is an element of capitalism, and Sanger was not a fan of capitalism as a socialist. So private charity was an element of capitalism that tries to be altruistic, but reeks of industrialization. And one of the problems with private charity was that it strove to help women take care of defective children, and it enabled some women who were poorer to somehow have more children. Perish the thought. So, what did she have to say in The Pivot of Civilization? In the chapter called The Cruelty of Charity, well, quote, Organized charity is thus confronted with the problem of feeble-mindedness and mental defect. But just as the state has so far neglected the problem of mental defect until this takes the form of criminal delinquency, so the tendency of our philanthropic and charitable agencies has been to pay no attention to the problem until it has expressed itself in terms of pauperism and delinquency. Such benevolence, quote-unquote, is not merely ineffectual, it is positively injurious to the community and the future of the race, unquote. Now, I know she's referring to the human race, but what she's saying is that charitable agencies end up with the problem because their benevolence injures the community because it doesn't take into account the problem of feeble-mindedness and mental defect. It helps them live. It doesn't help them eventually die off. That was Sanger's problem. Now, if you listen to the last episode, part one of this, covering Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sanger was the sixth of 11 children, and her mother had a total of 18 pregnancies, so 11 surviving children and seven miscarriages, and Margaret Sanger looked on that with disdain because since her mother died possibly before the age of 50 from tuberculosis, Margaret Sanger believed that her mother died young because she was weakened and enslaved to pregnancies and childbearing. And therefore, Margaret Sanger looked at large families as a blight on society. They were basically a sin in her view. So, if you asked Margaret Sanger, what's the greatest sin in the world? Would she say sacrificing children to Satan? Would she say worshiping Satan? Would she say murder or rape or anything like that? Well, she seemed to think that murder and rape and stuff are the byproduct of a greater sin, and that is large families. Now, Margaret Sanger seemed to be someone who refused to see the forest for the trees. She had a big-picture view of the world, while the details could be free to ebb and flow and air. And we mentioned in the last episode, she had three children with her first husband, William Sanger, two boys and a girl. Yet, Margaret Sanger seemed to neglect the tender needs of her own children for her political projects. Perhaps her own daughter, who died of tuberculosis as a young child, died because of Margaret Sanger's own neglect. Margaret Sanger herself admitted 
that she wasn't a, quote, fit person for love or home or children or anything which needs attention or consideration, unquote. And I would chalk this up to ideology or idealism. Idealistic ideologies like socialism, Malthusianism, and eugenics, all of which Sanger held to some degree, tend to make people fond for humanity in the aggregate and the abstract, but loathe to the faces of anyone near and dear, such as one's own children and family. In Sanger's autobiography, page 286, she was talking with a German doctor, and she said, quote, When I questioned him about the reported sterility of German woman, he agreed with the argument that the situation being what it was in the country, the population should be checked for the next five years. Here is a friend indeed, I said to myself, unquote. So Sanger considered a German doctor a friend who was holding to eugenic ideas that also included population control that we needed to have imposed limitations to stunt population growth. Now, get ready for this one. In Margaret Sanger's book, Woman and the New Race, she has a chapter entitled The Wickedness of Creating Large Families. So this book was written in 1920, and Sanger had a lot to say about how the greatest sin in the world today is large families. She put it above any sin, such as murder and rape, and chalked those up to being byproducts of large families. So large families were the great Satan. And what does she say? She says, quote, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it, unquote. Now, I know Margaret Sanger otherwise was not a fan of abortion. I know she's referred to infanticide as barbaric. So I will have to try to squint a little bit and see if there's any kind of tongue-in-cheekness to what she said there. But, you know, you read it as plain as day there. Margaret Sanger disdained large families so much that it's almost like, well, maybe even as dreadful as killing an infant is, perhaps it's a lesser evil than the effects of the large family on society. Now, Margaret Sanger had some views for birth control. Remember from that quote earlier, birth control kind of meant a form of controlling society. Margaret Sanger also had a lot to say about policies, like she really wanted the United States Congress to adopt her ideas and put them into law. And she wrote in an article on March 27, 1934, entitled, America Needs a Code for Babies. She proposed a baby code that separates a marriage license from a parenthood permit. Yes, you should need to apply for a permit that allows you to have children. So here are some of the articles that Margaret Sanger proposed. Article 3 that she proposed in her baby code, quote, A marriage license shall in itself give husband and wife only the right to a common household and not the right to parenthood. 
unquote. So in other words, if you have a wedding, you get married, and you get the state marriage license, that doesn't in any way legally permit you to have children at all. It only allows you to live in the same house and, you know, maybe get tax benefits from that. But you have no legal right to a child unless the government grants you that right. So the next article, Article 4, Sanger says, quote, No woman shall have the legal right to bear a child, and no man shall have the right to become a father without a permit for parenthood, unquote. So those of you who think that Margaret Sanger was all about women's rights and women's liberation and that birth control allowed them to have control over their own bodies, well, not so much. Margaret Sanger thought that birth control also meant control of people's reproductive freedoms, their ability to have children if that's what they chose. They must get permission from the government to have children. They need a permit for parenthood that may or may not be granted. And now let's look at Article 6 that she said. Quote, no permit for parenthood shall be valid for more than one birth, unquote. So you don't just apply for a permit to have children. You must apply for a permit for the legal right to have one birth. And the government may or may not grant that. Now, if the government grants that and you do have a child, what about the next child? Well, you must submit a request to get a permit again for another child, and the government may or may not grant it. So the government gets to control marriage, and marriage does not give anyone the legal right to a birth. So the government gets to control childbirth. One must apply for a permit for each child. What happens if the government refuses to grant a permit? And what happens if a woman unexpectedly becomes pregnant and the government doesn't grant the permit or refuses to grant the permit? Well, who knows what would happen there under Margaret Sanger's prescription. So, there are many other quotes that could be multiplied from Margaret Sanger that shows her very extreme eugenics, population control, racialist agenda. And Margaret Sanger clearly did not hold to a biblical view of child rearing. So, the biblical view of a woman is that childbearing is a blessing to her. We see in Deuteronomy 7.14, God says to Israel, Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. So if Israel were to keep covenant, one of the blessings that would make them blessed above all people is that God would withhold barrenness, not withhold children, withhold barrenness. Psalm 113 verse 9 it says, He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. So the psalmist is praising God for granting women children and the joy of motherhood. 
And of course, I and my wife have also quoted this passage a lot when we've talked about the topics of abortion or even taking care of children. So Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, it says, Lo, children are an heritage or a blessing of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So look all you might in the Bible. You will not find anything negative about pregnancy and childbirth and having children in the Bible. Now, of course, there will be instances where someone's children will sin and disappoint their parents and stuff like that, of course, but there's nothing about being granted a child being a curse. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.15, Notwithstanding, she, or the wife, shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So, in the Apostle Paul's view, the role of a woman being faithful in childbearing is kind of a form of salvation for her, sanctification, or experiencing the fullness of what salvation offers. Perhaps childbearing is a way that a woman understands, or maybe even some will come to the knowledge of salvation because of the truth of childbearing. Whatever the case here of what the Apostle Paul was getting at, it was certainly a positive view of childbearing. Now, the gospel itself is the true solution to worldly ideologies like eugenics and Malthusianism and socialism and racism. Worldly ideologies that have no place for individual virtue and that only look at humanity as a collection of species to be managed, kind of like animals in a zoo, and they're the zookeepers. What does the Apostle Paul understand about those who minister the gospel and our view of the world, how we look at ourselves and our mission in the world? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost." in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the Apostle Paul recognizes that our mission of the gospel to open the eyes of the world is not something that has to keep a hidden agenda. It's not something in which we have to handle the Word of God deceitfully. It's something where we commend ourselves to people's consciences. We renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. We don't have to have a goal that would result in a lot of people suffering, but try to package it 
in such a way that it's pitched to the benefit of some people. We don't have to have a particular target audience. We don't have to find the greatest people among civilization and pitch them the idea that would flatter them. And we recognize that the God of this world has blinded the minds of people who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who should shine unto them. Because when people are blinded to the truth, they're always seeking for meaning and purpose. They're not looking for meaning and purpose in another, being Jesus Christ, and meaning and purpose in serving him and living out a life of service to him that has meaning and purpose, even if it's for the sake of other people, in service to other people. We're not seeking our own. We're seeking to uplift and help other people. But the ideologies of this world tend to make people seek their own benefits seek to be leaders of movements that ultimately are toward the benefit of the members and to sacrifice the well-being of those who are not in the movement, who don't qualify to be in the movement. The ideologies of the world always pit people against each other and pit them in such a way that their physical or worldly identity or even things that they can't change make them an enemy of other people. But as Christians, when we believe that everyone is created in the image of God, everyone has value regardless if they would be what Margaret Sanger would consider defective stocks or human weeds, and that no children should be aborted, or that we shouldn't think of large families as evil, and we shouldn't even entertain the idea of killing infants. Margaret Sanger was one who followed the rudiments of the world and misunderstood her own personal experience being part of a large family, but used it as a lens against reality. She rejected whatever elements of Christianity slipped into her upbringing, and she favored a totalitarian humanism. And that's not compatible with the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us embrace and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and let us evaluate and expose Margaret Sanger, the real Margaret Sanger of history, what she taught and that it wasn't from God. And let us respect the value of human life and of children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Truth Espresso, and as always, stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey, friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.